0: That says it all. We've talked about uh, you are God alone today, and we believe, and it's been an incredible worship time already, but I want to share with you the I think the absolute foundation for the Christmas season is why we do Christmas, and uh, we, we focus on the Supreme One. I think we get distracted by a lot of stuff. I don't care what Starbucks does with its cups, okay? I care what believers do about Jesus. I, I mean, really. Okay, I don't know why we think lost people are supposed to kind of understand Jesus. They don't, and, I, and yes, I understand. I get that. Hey, Red comes by. Look, but I think we as believers, as we go out and and reflect the the, the fact that Jesus is supreme, it touches people's lives. I I, I don't want to fight about it. I want to flesh it out for people to see, and they go, "Wow, that's that's the Jesus that." That I want to know. So, he's supreme. Jesus is not one of the many great people in history. He is the greatest of all without rival. Did you get that? We live in a time where people try to fit him in a category of great teachers and great people and great influencer and great prophet. no. He doesn't fit in that category. He's in a category all his own. He's God. He don't fit anybody else's category. And so he's the greatest of all that rival because there's no rival for God. And let's look at, I want to share three thoughts with you and kind of hopefully you kind of be refreshed in thinking about him this season. Number one, Jesus is supreme as creator of this world and the revealer of God to this world. He does two things. No one else does. He creates and reveals. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says this. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Got to catch that. Paul's writing to the Colossian church. He's writing to believers. And they've kind of got confused about Jesus a little bit. They've kind of got carried away with some various forms of thinking and ideology, and they've missed the mark. And he's calling them back to a central truth, that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Now, what does that mean? Well, he's revealing God. Uh, he, He is the image, meaning he's the exact image in every respect, the very person of God. He is God in the flesh. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ the Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit, meaning we believe there is a God we cannot comprehend because he's able to be Three persons in one do, and we can't explain that, but the Bible teaches that. And here, it's very clear, Paul, who was a Jew who believed in one God and had a problem with Jesus because he thought it was a rival, now says, no, no, they're the same. Man, they're the same. So let's get on the same page with this. Jesus is God in the flesh. He became God uh, visibly for people to see. How God could really love. How he could touch lives. It's incredible. He's the very person of God. The invisible God became visible in Jesus. And Jesus is the only one who can put us in touch with God. Uh, That's just how he showed us his love. Uh, He existed before anything was created. And is supreme over all creation. Now, let's go to verse 16. For through him. God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. Now, that's a whole different sermon in and of itself, what God did about things we can't see. That's for another time. But I want to talk, He created everything that exists, okay? And He came as creator, but also in His ability to create, He came to reveal God to a world that needed to be loved and reached, and transformed. And he did this by being God in the flesh. And in being God in the flesh, he he demonstrated this, this amazing capacity for God to love. There's The four Gospels are filled with illustrations of Jesus loving people. But one of my favorites is, a, is when he's walking down the streets of a city and the crowds have gathered to see Jesus. Man, they're kind of excited, fired up. They're hoping. They're hoping and praying that he'll just give them a look and kind of nod at them, they go, that's Jesus, man. Or that he may reach out and touch them on the arm or that he may speak to them. They're all saying, man, this is great. He's just awesome and we can't wait for him to come down and maybe, maybe we'll have a connection. They're kind of excited. And then somebody shows up along the sidewalk and he's a tax collector. Now, let me explain something about tax collectors in that day. Nobody liked them. Nobody. They were actually pretty much hated because they took advantage of people, uh, they overtaxed people, and they kind of stole from people. And so nobody liked them, and everybody knew who they were because you had to deal with them. And so Zacchaeus is curious about Jesus. He's coming through the crowd, and you realize nobody's going to let him in front of them. You understand that? Ain't nobody going to say, oh, is you come and get in front of me. No, they're going to go, look, you little squirt. Stay back there. We don't care about you. They didn't like him. They wasn't nobody going to be polite to him or kind to him. And all of a sudden, he's wanting to see Jesus, so he climbs up a sycamore tree that he could see because he was short. And so he's kind of going, let me see what's happening. And, and as Jesus is coming down the street, people are excited and they're hoping they're going to get the connection and the nod and, all of a sudden, Jesus stops. Can you imagine him going, He's going to speak to me. I'm in the front of the line. He's got to see me. I'm here over here. Jesus, I'm here. He didn't say, He said, Zacchaeus. I think it's pretty neat. He said, Zacchaeus by name. He called him by name. Zacchaeus, I know who you are, man. I know all about you. And I've come to spend time with you today. I'm coming to your house. Now, guys, that's, the, that's such an amazing story. What we don't know is what the people did when that happened. Uh, they, I'm sure some of them got mad. I can't believe he's going to go to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus is horrible. Man, he's a tax collector. Jesus should know that. We don't associate with tax collectors. As a matter of fact, remember, one of the accusations against Jesus was he ate with sinners and tax collectors, which was a no-no. And He didn't do that in that society culture. So, He says, I'm going to go to your house. And he went down and talked to Zacchaeus and talked about that fact that God would love even a tax collector. And Zacchaeus had a transforming moment in his life. He trusted by faith what Jesus said, and he became a different person. He said, I'm not going to cheat anybody anymore. I'm going to restore what I've stolen, and I'm going to be different. That's the revealer of God's love. And that revealer of God's love is also the creator. He was the first to be the designer of all creation. Before anything or anyone was, Jesus already existed. That's what this verse means. At a specific moment, Jesus decided to create, and he made from nothing everything we see and what we cannot see. It's just that simple. On day one, he created this. On day two, this. Day three, day four, day five, day six. He created the various things we enjoy and see and what we don't see. And then he rested. He is a designer. When we celebrate Christmas, we're not celebrating just the birth of a baby. We're celebrating the fact that a creator came to his creation to reveal God's love. Man, I, that's the Christmas season. That's the Christmas foundation. So he said, I, I've come to, to show God to you. The one who created you has come to live with you. Life was not an accident. It was a plan, and we are created by him for him. He is the creator. You see that? That's important. Much is debated today about creation. I understand the theory of evolution and the various things that people talk about. It happened in Dallas, Texas at a great convention. It was the Atheist Convention. Uh, Atheists from all over the world would come to this convention and be a part of it. They had speakers. It was a big conference, and they talk about uh, why there is no God, how there can be no God, and emphatically, there is no God. And therefore, there is no creator. If there's no God, if there's no creator, then we're here by an act of a process. It kind of started with a bang. They had different speakers affirm their their statement and convictions. And then came the moment of time when one of their really heroes, who had been a great debater and a great uh, argument for atheism, they invited him. To, introduced him to come to the platform. As they said, I talked about his accomplishments. They also said he was one of our foremost experts on atheism. And they welcomed Anthony Flew to the platform in front of thousands. And as he stood there, and they applauded. Because he was one of them. And they knew he was going to say, there is no God. He shocked them. As a matter of fact, for a few minutes in time, he left them speechless. As he stood behind the platform, he said, I have always believed there is no God. But based on my research of the complexity of this world, I now conclude there has to be a designer. Oh, you could have heard a pin drop. No way we exist without a designer. He knew who the designer was. Had no idea what to call the designer. He just said there had to be someone who started this. of complexity of design we know him as Jesus supreme over his creation the second thing Jesus is supreme in authority over his church and over death he's over natural life but it goes further than that Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 says this He existed before anything else. That means he's eternal. And he holds all creation together. He is the reason things don't self destruct and this (laughs) planet doesn't fall into a million pieces. He has put laws in place, he maintains those laws, and he maintains everything in balance that we enjoy, the life we enjoy. He holds it all together. And so is, he, he's supreme in the fact that he's done all this, but he's also, as, as we look at verse 18, Christ is also, also equally as important and powerful, he is also the head of the church, which is his body. Our body works because the head functions. I mean, that's just how life is. If the head doesn't function, the body doesn't work. Well, we have Jesus Christ in our head, therefore the body functions. He sends out direction, signals, and, and instruction, and we follow. And so he said, I, I'm in charge of the church. I'm the originator of the church. He's the source of spiritual life. We would call that the second birth. He certainly created natural life. Now he says, I'm going to give you spiritual life. A guy named Nicodemus came to him by night and said, I'm trying to figure out how I go to heaven. He said, here, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus said, I don't understand that because I just don't understand that. I'm too old to be born again. He said, it's the birth of the Spirit, man. It's a spiritual birth. You've got to have a new beginning. you got to have a moment in time when you receive God's life because your life ain't going to cut it. Your life's in trouble. Your life is going to end up in the wrong place one day. But his life takes you where he's planned for you to be and prepared for you to be. So he said, look, you got to have a second birth spiritual life that's the church is based on a spiritual birth man we it's not based on rules and regulations and formulas the church is based on the person of Jesus Christ the foundation who says here's what I do I give life I give life abundantly then Nicodemus you've got to be born again and so he goes okay I I, I don't understand so he says you have got to be born in the spirit No other person can claim this. He said, look, this is what has to happen. The second birth empowers the church to grow the family of God, of which he is the head. He preserves the church through time and trouble. And this is why the gates of hell will not prevail. We sang about that a little earlier, if you remember. The gates of hell will not prevail against the body of Christ universal. This is bigger than the local church, folks. Local churches will close, some will close their doors. That's not, he's talking about the body of Christ. When the day is done, we'll be where it's supposed to be in heaven with the Lord, and nothing's going to prevail against that. Culture won't stop that, satanic activity won't stop that. Terrorism won't stop that. He's the head. And where he goes, the body goes. And we're with him. He's also the source of life after death. This is what he said. He, he, he rose from the dead. Man, he, he's first in everything. He, he, he was the first one to really be resurrected from the dead. You say, oh, no, now you're wrong there because we know Lazarus was resurrected from the dead. Let's talk about that for a minute. Lazarus was restored to life. He would die again. He came out of the grave. They took the grave clothes off of him, but he lived, he went back to his normal life. And he would die again. Jesus, when he was crucified and buried, he came out of the grave with a different kind of body and a different kind of life to demonstrate for us what would happen to us when we are resurrected. And we don't die again when that happens. We don't go back to a normal life. He was the supreme over the grave and over death. And where, where he led the path, if we follow him, we won't experience a second death because we've had a second birth. If you're born once, you die twice. Meaning, if you're born physically, you die physically, but you also die spiritually and go to a place called hell where God is not. But if you're born twice, you only die once. You're born physically, then you're born spiritually, the spiritual birth, and you die physically, but never die again. And you're forever with God in a place called heaven. So he said, This is how it works. He's supreme to make this work like this. There's nothing like it. So. The third thing is this. Jesus is supreme for making a way to be right with God. Verse 19 says this. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. That is an amazing verse. In all his fullness to live in Christ. He's supreme. Now, when I say supreme, most people kind of don't connect that much with our culture today. What does supreme mean? I think most people understand this. Uh, we were, we were on vacation somewhere and, and we went in, we like pizza, Sean and I do, so we went to pizza place and she always, you know, she kind of likes to, uh, me, I'm a, I'm a meat lover's guy, give me the, the bacon, the ground beef, whatever, man, ham, let's load it up, and, uh, she likes vegetables on pizza, which I don't understand, (laughs) but anyway, uh, so we we're there and they, have, they had the supreme pizza called the supreme. And we said, Oh, she said, what's on the supreme? And the guy said, everything we got in the store is on the supreme. Everything we have is on that pizza. When God says this about Christ, says, everything I am is in Jesus. Ain't nothing left. Everything I am is in him because we're one and the same. His fullness, his essence, everything that he is is everything that Jesus is. There's nothing left out. So the next verse, verse 20. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself, made things right to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. You see, Jesus was the supreme sacrifice, unlike any other. Jesus died on the cross, making it possible to have a relationship with God the Father. Hear what I'm about to say. If there was no cross, there would be no Christmas. See, the reason people have a problem with Christmas Is because if they acknowledge the birth of Christ, they have to acknowledge the death of Christ. And all of a sudden, it bothers them. It offends them. They're not offended by a baby. They're offended by a Savior. And the fact there's a cross is why we celebrate Christmas. Man, that's the thing. He became the supreme sacrifice, making us right by dying on the cross. He made us right with God. If we would come and receive and accept what he did for us, a personal moment of faith and trust where you realize Jesus died on the cross for your sins personally, and you receive that, and you accept that payment for your sins, and all of a sudden faith touches the heart of God in such a way that he gives you a second birth. And you become a follower of Christ. You become a new creation, Paul would say. You begin to walk a different way. You think a different way. You live a different way. All because of the blood of Jesus on the cross, he made us right with God. If we'll trust him, if we'll receive him and what he did, it makes everything different. Jesus makes everything right in the world. Next verse, verse 21. This includes you. Now, on the church, he said, man, God did something amazing in Jesus. He made us, he made it possible a personal relationship. And this includes you who were once far away from God. Man, you didn't care about God, didn't think about God, didn't want to follow God. Isn't that good news for people you know today that are there? They don't have to stay there. Amen, that's pretty good. People there now, they ain't got to stay there. There's hope. You were his enemies. Pretty strong word on the wrong side. Separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Verse 22. Yet now. Isn't that a great phrase, yet now? You were once, but yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. He physically died on a cross. buried in a tomb rose with spiritual body that was visible. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Does that not blow your mind? Because nobody in this room should think you're absolutely perfect yet, right? Ain't none of us perfect yet. We every once in a while, maybe Get mad when we shouldn't. I mean, we just had Black Friday, so don't tell me you ain't got mad about something. Uh, We kind of sometimes get frustrated and maybe we don't, maybe we're not as kind as we need to be or sometimes we wrestle that forgiveness thing of others. Sometimes we think things we shouldn't think. But he says, what happened on the cross was so amazing, so supreme, that it covers our sins past, present, and future. And when God looks at us, he looks at us through the, the, the blood of Jesus, and he sees no fault in us. We're not guilty. We've been made righteousness in Christ. We've been made right with God. That's all that means, just made right with God. He makes everything right in the world. Not only with believers, not only with people, but he makes things right with the world, as Romans would say, is groaning for deliverance from the curse of sin. I think the world is in a groaning stage now. Groaning for God to do something to deliver this planet. And he does. And he will. He's going to make everything right. There's coming a day when there'll be no terrorism. There'll be no more tragedy. There'll be no more catastrophe, there'll be no more abuse, there'll be no more hunger, there'll be no more disease, and there'll be no more death, because Jesus has overcome. That's Christmas. That's Christmas to understand we're celebrating the supremacy of Jesus. And it doesn't matter what the world says, that doesn't change. It doesn't matter who says Merry Christmas and who doesn't. It doesn't change. I can say Merry Christmas, and I do. As I shop, as I see people, Merry Christmas. If they don't like it, that's their problem. I know why I celebrate Christmas. Christmas not going to be ugly not going to be mean i'm just excited about jesus and i'm not ashamed of him he's supreme and maybe others begin to realize why are these people so excited about jesus because of what he's done how he's changed my life the words of chris tomlin in his song i will rise i love this just little phrase I will rise when he calls my name. No more sorrow, no more pain. Man, he's supreme. Jesus, his salvation is available. His second coming is imminent. His judgment is final. And his kingdom is forever. He's supreme. There's no one else like Jesus.